everybody. Welcome back to The Smattering, where we ask the hard questions about investing. We are one year and one episode into this amazingly fun venture. I'm Jason Hall, joined, as usual, by the voice of the people, Jeff Santoro. Jeff, buddy, how's it going, man? Hey, hey. How are you, friend? I'm good. We're, we're getting back to a little bit more of like the tool, kind of a toolbox episode here. We've been on a run where we kind of self, self, a little self-introspection last week, a little celebration, a little looking forward with our one-year anniversary episode. And we've had a lot of guests on over the past, really over the whole summer, I guess, is the best way to think about it. And here we are in the middle of earnings season, you and I both, for, for my day job, for your side hustle. We, we do a lot of pro- professional work looking at earnings because people want to know what's going on with the companies they own. Traders always love to trade around earnings because stocks are more volatile. So we decided to do an episode, we're titling it Earnings Season Mindset. Yeah, this is, I thought this would be a good idea based on what I decided to write about last week in our newsletter, which was just about, specifically about when companies in your portfolio have huge one-day drops after earnings. People can go back and read that specific short newsletter thing that I wrote about it. And I'm sure we'll talk about it. If you don't subscribe to our newsletter, uh, just go to thesmattering.net and it'll take you right to it. And you can subscribe and get it in your email. Every Sunday we drop a new, um, we share a little bit of our thoughts. And then on Saturdays, corresponding with the release of the podcast, we do the transcript too. So if that'll help you to have a transcript, that's how you can get that too. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I will talk more about it there, but that's what spurred the idea on. But I'd love to talk about this because I love earnings season. I think it's super fun. I like getting all the info, all the new numbers for my nerdy spreadsheets. So I thought it'd be a good thing for us to just kick around for a little bit and have a conversation about. Before we dive in, though, we have been continuing to get slowly people rating and reviewing the show on the podcast apps. We appreciate that. If you're listening and haven't had a chance to do that yet, it just takes a few seconds to give us a star rating. It takes a few more than that if you want to write something about the show. And also feel free to reach out for feedback. We, we occasionally hear from listeners on uh, email or Twitter DM sharing their feedback about the show, positive and negative. Anything you have to say, please let us know. It helps us make the show better. All right. So Jason, let's dig in. Uh, it is earning season. And you're right. Professionally, for what you do during the day and my side hustle, this is an exciting time every quarter because there's new information, new angles to write about and think about. But it also can be very anxiety-inducing when you see large reactions to earnings, whether they're positive. Well, I guess the positive may not be anxiety-inducing as much as when they're negative. And it got me thinking about just the mindset that you need going through earnings season. And I know when I was, I'll start off with a quick story. When I was very new to buying stocks, I would do dumb things like, on the day a company was going to report based on really nothing more than my feels, I would buy a company because I thought it was going to go up when the earnings came out. And I think the first time I did it, it worked. Like I bought something and then earnings came out and it jumped like 10% and I thought I was and a you, genius. You mistaked, you mistaked your luck for skill. Yeah. And then I did it again and then something dropped 10 or 15% and then I stopped. I was like, okay, this is stupid. But that's maybe one of the things we can talk about later is like, should you or could you or, or does anyone ever buy like in earnings season, like the day of, the day before? That can be sometimes you see volatility with the stock even leading up to earnings. I guess the market is doing the same thing I was doing back in the day. So I guess to kick things off, uh, let's each talk about what we do, if anything, during earnings season. 
Yeah. So I, I love this because you and I take entirely different approaches to earnings season and mine's evolved a tremendous amount. I think I've probably told this story here on the podcast. I've, I've certainly written about it and told, talked about it in other formats, but I guess it was, I can't remember exactly when, but pretty early in my investing career, my wife and I, and my cousin and his now wife, the four of us spent 17 days in Europe. Great trip. We went in the spring and it was at the tail end of earnings season for the first quarter when we went. And it was just long enough ago that you know, the internet was not quite as ubiquitous as it is now. FinTwit certainly wasn't a thing. So social media for for finding information, you would actually have to like go into like a McDonald's or something to get Wi-Fi, to get internet because it was still expensive back, in, back then to have data internationally. And like, I mean, I almost ruined my marriage for a couple of days there because like I was so, like I, I wanted to know what was going on. And like, like I set up stop losses and what am I like? I did, I did all this stupid stuff and it was a good lesson to learn when my wife said, you have two choices, right? And you may think that neither of them are good choices, but one of them is more important that you make the right choice. And I chose correctly and decided just to stop worrying about it and stop focusing on it. And I had a great vacation and strengthened my, <laughs> strengthened my relationship with my spouse instead of damaging it. And Jeff, oh goodness, I've forgotten his name, but wrote the author of One Up on Wall Street, Peter Lynch, Peter Lynch. He writes about it in that book when he was, I think he was golfing in Scotland or something during the, the crash, the flash crash in 1987, when the market fell 20 some odd percent in like a single day. And he's managing other people's money, substantial amount of other people's money. And back then, again, no internet, paper orders, actual traders on a floor, right? was a very different environment. And, and talking about like, for most people, the best position to be in was to do nothing. And again, that wasn't during earnings season when that happened, but it was during a period of extreme volatility. And all of that to say that the approach that I've evolved to is besides my professional obligations and the ones that I'm really curious about, like the ones we're talking about with like in the smattering portfolio, I might not look at a company's earnings report for weeks after they actually report. Some of my big, like my biggest holding right now, my biggest holding is Mercado Libre. We were talking about it before we hit record, it's over 4% of my portfolio. I haven't read the whole earnings report yet. I haven't. I just haven't. I will. I just haven't. Yeah. You, you drive me nuts because you're like my only investing. Well, not, I, I should, can't say only investing friend. I got in trouble with our other investing friends for saying this. <laughs> you're the investing friend I probably talk to the most. And sometimes I'll text you about a company that reported and you're like, what? I don't, I don't know. And I, I know, I know even as I write it, it's not like you're going to then go look in order to engage in the conversation. You will just ignore me. Of course not. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. no, 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 I won't ignore you. I will engage you in completely unproductive ways. Well, so you. is it, so that story you told is interesting because I think one of the lessons I learned back early on when I was talking earlier about how I used to sometimes just try to guess and buy something before earnings 
one of the things I learned pretty quickly was, because my thinking when I was new in wanting to be up on earnings, like right when they drop, like, okay, it's four o'clock, I get the email alert that company X reported, I'm going to go read the press release. I used to think I need to do that because what if there's some like really bad news and I need to sell because the company is going to fall apart. And what I realized was, A, that happens very, very rarely that something so catastrophic comes out in an earnings release that you'd have to sell. But, but I also learned that even if I opened the report, read it in two seconds and could trade in another three seconds, I've already, it's already sold off 30% because the algorithms and the professional traders and all the stuff that's out there now will just scrape the press release for news and it, you, you can't, you will never be quicker than, yeah. than the computers. Yeah. So they, they react before an individual investor has a chance to even see the right. alert show up on their phone. Yeah. Because there's days where I'll see something down 10% and the release isn't out yet. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so now on the margins, could that matter? Like maybe you sell for a loss of down 20% and instead of down 25% or something like that, maybe. Yeah. But at that point, it's probably not going to matter in the long run. So that's a lesson I learned early on. I am still a huge fan of earnings season. I just think it's fun as someone yeah. who like likes this. I, I, like I said, I have my nerdy spreadsheet. I like to update the numbers and I like to see where things are going. What do you think about... So let's go to my the thing I wrote about last week in the newsletter, which was what happens when a company you own, maybe even in your situation where you haven't read the report and are no in rush and not in a rush to, but it drops 20% on the news. That happened to me last week with three or four different companies. If 10% or more losses uh, drops, I probably had four or five companies just last week that dropped that much based on earnings. Would you, what do you do in that situation? Does that compel you to go look at least? It's funny because obviously whenever you see that, you, you want to, and we've talked a lot about like the managing your, your investments is managing yourself as much as it's actually managing the assets that you own. And that pain of a loss is going to hurt more than a win is going to feel good. You could double and it's going to feel good. You could lose 10% and it, that might hurt worse than that double feels good. Because just again, human psychology. So you, you do want to know. So like as a starting point, I've, I think I've, I've really made it such like a bedrock principle to understand that, like that reality of how we're wired and how we literally feel when, when we see gains and losses. So like I'm, I'm, I've almost over biased myself to not react, right. To not, I shouldn't say react, but to not act. Right. I guess react is probably the best way to put it. But the other part of it too was like for a long time, like I had swung the pendulum in the other direction. Well, Fortinet is a good example. I think that was one that, that you wrote about that fell significantly, 20, 25% or so. 25%. Yeah. 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 And this is a big company and this is a profitable business, right? This is, it's been around for 20 years. It's not a new company. It's, I mean, of course it got caught up in all the, the zeitgeist back in 2021, but again, this is a good productive cash cow kind of business to fall that much was certainly a surprise. And my knee jerk reaction, I can tell you, because I'm still pretty bullish in the business, you and other people like that I, that I know that follow it said, I see this as an overreaction, but there's a version of me that, I mean, is recently probably it's 2020 or 2021. Like 
I might have just bought before even like doing more than spending five minutes of scanning the report. And and in general, like over the long term, that's been fine. But a lot of times when a stock falls that much, it falls that much for for a reason, right? And I think in the case of like a Fortinet, is it twenty five percent less business than it was a week ago? No, but maybe the market's saying that, wow, we were really overestimating how quickly the company can grow over the next five years, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I found that for me, it's really smart just to not act and yeah. let the market kind of figure it out, you know? I, that's the lesson I've learned too. In fact, I was so sure that the market overreacted and I still didn't. I didn't buy anything and I didn't yeah. buy, I bought a little early this week. I bought on a Monday instead of a Wednesday because I'm going to be busy. So I did my weekly buying this week. I did it today. We're recording this on Monday, but it wasn't Fortinet. And that's part of the same lesson that I, th I feel like I've learned. Because here's the reality. There's a, this is another, this is related to another thing I, I learned pretty early on that I think is worth thinking about. I don't see a lot of people think of it this way, but it, I didn't come up with this. I saw someone say it on Twitter once and it really resonated with me. So I looked at Fortinet. The 25% drop on Friday brought it back to where it was in March, like mid-March. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you're like, oh, bummer. Like it's 25% lower. That's, that sucks. That's this a pretty... is not like March, 2020 level deals. So, but to me, it's more, it, to me, it's the market saying it's probably more fairly valued at where it was in March than it is now. And we've seen a lot of companies have just, in, we've been talking about it every time we do a portfolio update, it's been us going back and forth being like, if you told me in December of 2022 that the the biggest performer in this whole portfolio would be up 15%, we would have taken it because that's how beaten down we all felt at, at the end of last year. And here we are talking about triple digit growth for some of the companies in the portfolio. So yeah, yeah. looking, that's one thing I do is sort of like a mental trick is go see the last time the company traded at its now reduced price. And it, sometimes it's, a, I remember back in 2021 when something would drop big, it would, sometimes it would just be like two weeks earlier, but it's just, just you forget how quickly things have gone up. But the other thing too, that I think matters when it comes to like big drops is if you have a framework or a system or some sort of steps you follow for your buying, and I know that's more my style than yours, you're sort of like a save a bunch of cash, find an opportune time and buy a bunch of stuff. And I'm more of a regular buyer. That has helped me enormously. I have a little bit of a system I follow each week when I buy. It's a framework, not rules, because sometimes I ignore it and I just buy something that my little system would tell me not to because it's just what I want to do. But whenever there's like a big, I feel like there's a decision based on a big move, like with these three, because it was Fortinet, it was DigitalOcean, Lemonade, Redfin, like these are all companies I own that dropped pretty significantly last week. I didn't buy any of them today. And part of it's because I forced myself back into my system as a check on trading sentiment. Right. You know, because one of two things will happen with these companies that dropped 20% plus. They'll slowly come back up or they'll really quickly come back up or they'll stay where they are or they'll drop a little further as time goes on. And that will right. probably be, the longer you wait and see what happens, it's probably a better indicator of 
where the stock should be, if that makes yeah. any sense. I think the Redfin one's a good example because, you know, this is a stock that has just gone gangbusters from the lows, I guess, late last year. And like, like I've said, and I'm, I made some pretty significant investments back then because like, there was a major short thesis that the, the company was like, they were zero. Like people thought they were going to go under or be acquired for pennies on the dollar or whatever. And like, I understood the balance sheet pretty well. And like, I didn't see like existential risk for the business, but like, I was also being realistic that because I follow housing really closely and Redfin's core business, because now they've gotten out of like the house flipping, they're out of eye buying and they do a little bit of other stuff, but like they make almost all of their money on commissions from as a real estate brokerage, right? They list houses and they, and they sell them and they make a little bit of money. Like I think they do like a little bit of mortgage origination, that kind of stuff. I think they do. Most brokerages do a little bit of that, but like this is a terrible time to be in that business because there's no inventory, right? Nobody's listing houses. A lot of its single family homes have, have been sucked up by corporate um, investors that are renting them. You have so many boomers that have not downsized for one reason or another. And a lot of them, it's because they spent 20 years refinancing all the way down and they still have a mortgage and it's less than 3% and they're not going to sell it that big four bedroom family house and then move to a condo that costs half as much and have the same mortgage payment. You know, they're not going to do that. Right. So it's the, the housing market is just kind of a mess right now. So it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that Redfin stocks got absolutely smashed because investors got way out ahead of it. And again, yeah. there was pressure from shorts and, and shorts getting squeezed a little bit. So looking beyond just what they reported and how the market reacted that day, your example about Fortinet is spot on. It's like, what did the stock do in the weeks and months heading into it? That's going to have some, yeah. some effects. And one thing I've learned, I've actually learned this lesson from listening to the Motley Fool Money podcast, because they taught back when Chris Hill was hosting it, especially one of the questions he would ask the, the guests a lot when there was a big stock movement, positive or, or especially if it was negative. Um, you know, he would say something along the lines of like, is this warranted or is this some people maybe taking some money off the table if it was like a company that's done really well, or was this a company that was just priced per for perfection? And I think there was a little bit of that in these companies that we talked about already yeah. too, like yeah. Redfin, anything that goes up, what was it up? A hundred something percent year to date or something. I was a lot yeah, for a, a company a that, yeah, that doesn't have its future set in stone yet. That's going any little blip. Same thing with Fortinet. It's an established company. But when when it's been doing so well, it's up like 50, 60% year to date. And all of a sudden they're saying, like, yeah, it's going to look a little tough for the next quarter or two. Well, of course it's going to sell off. <laughs> right. You know, because right. it, it, it had been going up so uh, so so much. So yeah, that's I think another it's still up. Just just round figures here. It was up about 250% since last November before the big the big sell-off at earnings, it's still up 150% since November. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's in fact, I, one of the things I noticed when I looked at it after the drop, it's still kind of expensive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> you if know, you look like, at it based on like based on, based on where the business is today, that's right. the thing. So what, um, here's another thought I had too, when, as I was thinking for, about this episode, that not all 20% drops are equal 
And here's what I mean. One of the things that's a, just a really easy thing you can look up that will give you a little bit of a sense about how big of a deal, a huge drop or a huge jump is, is a company's beta and also its size and how established it is. So yeah. beta, so beta is a, just to define that for everybody, it's how volatile a stock is compared to a benchmark for most stocks, the beta is compared to the S and P 500. So how much more volatile is it than the market? Right. Is I guess the way to think about it. Yeah. So if you have a company with like a really low beta and it jumps or drops 20%, that's a little bit more of like a big deal, big deal versus lemonade. Redfin, which I'm not looking them up right now, but I'm guessing they have betas decently above one, meaning they're going to be more volatile, both on the upside and the downside than the market. Um, there's yeah, some companies. Uh, Redfin's is three. Yeah. So triple the volatility of the S&P. Right. Yeah. So you should expect over the course of a year, probably multiple double digit drops. And I remember when I was brand new, just not even relating to earnings, I would open the Yahoo Finance app and see something that I own up 6%, down 8% and freak out. And then I, just because I did it long enough, I was like, oh, that happens. It's like a normal, for some companies, that's like a Tuesday. They're just, they're right. just more volatile. Yeah. You see something really established. Like if you see Berkshire Hathaway drop 15%, something catastrophic happened. Yeah. Because yeah. that's probably the best example of a company that's not going to move around much. So Jason, here's one of the things I was thinking about. One of the other things that kind of helps me keep my head straight on straight during earnings season when there's big movement is making sure I'm clear on why I own all the companies in my, my portfolio yeah. and what are the things I'm keeping an eye on to let me know that the company is on track or not on track. Because in the case of really all of these companies we've talked about, I looked at the results and said, basically, yes, some short-term challenges, and they're very clear what they are, deceleration of growth, consumer spending less, whatever it is, but all the things that I'm keeping an eye on, are re which are reasons why I'm owning these businesses, I want to see growth of end users go, keep going up, I want to see revenue grow, I want to see larger customers increase, all still intact. And no company goes up and to the right on a straight line. There's dips and valleys along the way, and there's going to be great quarters and weak quarters. But if you own something without having any clue why you own it, which I'll be honest, there are things in my portfolio I bought with no real reason other than someone recommended it to me. And so I'm not, I'm not like on my ivory tower here, but I also know enough to also not react to their big movements because I don't know enough about the company to know if, what the drivers of the big movements are. Right. But I think that's another important thing. Like if you know exactly, okay, I own lemonade because I'm looking for this and this is still there. It's a good reason to just stand pat and hope it's just a, a one quarter blip. What do you think about that? Yeah. The, I think lemonade is a good example because we did a couple of videos around earnings talking about lemonade, like what they need to do. And so there's two parts of it, right? There's why do you own it? What is your thesis? What are you expecting? What do you know about the business? What are the risks as you understand them? And like understanding the bear thesis, honestly, and I think when you're dealing with, with the volatility around earnings, I think understanding the bear thesis for a business and understanding the risks is more important than understanding like the, the bull thesis, the, like, like the how am I going to make money part of it? Because the reality is like all it takes is one thing going wrong. 
or not going to plan and the best thesis in the world gets unraveled. One thing, right? And that's the case with Lemonade, right? And the one thing happens to be really damn important. And that's being good at, at underwriting insurance, right? At profitable levels. And they've, they've struggled with that, right? We, we, that continues to be the thing that they don't, they don't deliver that that's holding the business back, even with their wonderful growth rates, you know, you have to be profitable as an insurer if you're going to be an insurer. So understanding that gives you like the temerity to be able to, I don't know if that's the right word, but I'm going to go with it because it's a fun, fun word. It, give, it gives you, it gives you the, the ability to get through these environments and try to stay more objective about what you're going to do, how much leash you're going to give them, how much rope you're going to give them, how much patience you're going to give yourself without taking taking action. Because I know there's tons of people out there, dude, that would look at Lemonade and see, wow, 50% growth in premium, 20% customer growth, 20% or 30% average customer premium growth. Triple digit revenue growth. Yeah, triple digit revenue growth and be like, oh, whoa, yeah, the market's stupid, I'm buying this. And it's like, well, bro, they're still losing a ton of money because they can't actually ins <laughs> underwrite insurance. And, and you can avoid, I mean, it could still work out, right? I own lemonade, you own lemonade. And like, you could get lucky and buy a business that's struggling to do the central thing they have to do well, if they figure it out, right? Yeah. Um, it's also, I think it also depends how you buy, right? So if you're yeah. the kind of person that either buys a full position, whatever that is for you all at once, or if you're a kind of person that buys in thirds or quarters, yep. you have to be a little bit more careful about when you buy and like what you're doing, because you're going to do one, two, three, four purchases and be done. If you're more of a dollar cost averager, I think you can be a little bit more, I don't want to say, I don't know. I don't want the word, maybe a little bit less discerning in terms of like, this is a do or die decision. You know, if you, if you yeah. buy another, well, the screw ups don't hurt as much. Yeah, they don't hurt as much. Exactly. You can still, you know, you can still kill death by a thousand cuts, but. Right. You still but, want to be careful, but I just think yeah. it, it, it does matter like the kind of, and again, that's you having to know yourself and your strategy and having a plan right. and not just winging it. I think also Lemonade is a good, Lemonade's a good example of a way that by making yourself pause and think about why you own the business, you can also send yourself down a path of figuring out what the news from this quarter means. And here's an example of that. Um, you and I have been talking about Lemonade over and over again. Their biggest issue is underwriting insurance, right? And getting the loss ratios down. So we know that. And we see this quarter, every, a lot of things look really good, but the loss ratios didn't. But then I think the next step as a person who's interested in like understanding investing a little bit more is to say to yourself or say to someone else that you're having a conversation with, okay, so I know the loss ratios need to come down. They need to get better at underwriting insurance. What can happen? to make like, what, what do I want to see happen that tells me they're heading in the right direction? Right. So one of the things you and I talked about when we made the video the other day was, you know, they're still in the early days of rolling out car insurance, right? They picked up, what was the company? Metro mile they Metro acquired mile. Right. a year right. or two ago. And we talked on the video about, well, if they're able to bring in more and more customers and get more and more people buying car insurance policies, that lessens their risk to catastrophic loss, right? More people with car insurance policies helps the hurricane that comes through Florida not be as big of an impact to your insurance business as if you don't have all those people with the car insurance policies. You're spreading out your risk. You have geographic diversification, all those things. Yeah. But right. you can't have that realization until you know 
these are the metrics I'm keeping an eye on to tell me if lemonade is on the right path. And you're not going to get that level of nuance on the internet, typically. You're no. not going to get that on Twitter. You're not, somebody's going to be hot takes, this is garbage, or this is going strangers, to the moon. Bunch of anonymous, complete strangers whose motivations I have absolutely no understanding of, and I'm not sure if they actually have integrity or not. You mean, that's not, those are, those are not trustworthy sources? Right. It's yeah. really just the smattering. That's where everyone should get all that's of it. their, that's, that's it. it. All entirely. Yeah, entirely. All right. So let's go in a different direction. Well, before, before we do, I want to build okay. on that a little bit because there's a couple of things that I think are, are useful too. There's a lot of research that's been done on being right or wrong. And particularly as we've seen a lot of, I don't, I don't want to stumble into a political conversation here, but we've seen the political discourse devolve and wherever you, whatever your political bent is, we, we've seen misinformation become more of a thing, right? And there's just been a tremendous amount of research that's been done that, that overwhelmingly shows that the bigger the stakes, the harder it becomes to admit when you're wrong. So I think that's really important with, again, eliminate as an example, or maybe to a lesser extent, Fortinet. Right, which is, you know, again, it's a big cash cow company. It's they're established. They're you know they're they're not trying to reinvent something. Right, they're participating in something that's really big and important, and they're a disruptor and an innovator in it. But they're not, you know, completely trying to flip it on its ear like Lemonade is. Um, if you're the kind of person that makes those bigger one-time investments in a company, the higher the stakes are the more important it is that you get it right the first time, <laughs> right? And I think that's maybe the bigger thing. And that's one of the reasons with like Fortinet, for example, it was easier for me to kind of slow things down because I do tend to dollar cost average into companies too. I'll build, my, build out my possession, position over multiple years. And Fortinet, for example, like with this big drop that it had, one of the things that made it easier for me to not freak out, I want to circle back to that too, is sure you look at it and well, that's, I lost 25% on that stock, but then I look at my portfolio and so far Fortinet's 1% one, 1 of my portfolio, 0.25%, right? That was, that was the impact in aggregate on, on my, my wealth. And that, when you start reframing things in that way, it can make it a lot easier to be objective. And to be thoughtful about the decision you make, not overreact in any one particular um, direction, give yourself some grace too, and then move forward with whatever decision you want to make. And often, this is the big one. I really wanted to say this, Jeff. Often, the best decision is none, is not to make a decision. Yeah. Yeah. It, it reminds me of, we had talked about this before, two things, right? Knowing what your goals are. My goal is to have enough money to live comfortably in retirement. And... And then leading straight from that is the idea of what, what does your portfolio look like in the aggregate? And to me, the way I've sort of phrased that in the past is focusing on the bottom line of your brokerage statement and not the individual lines. Look at the Absolutely. total. Um, Absolutely. Because if I get to whatever, if I reach my goal and I look one day and my entire retirement portfolio is up, I don't know, a thousand percent, then I don't care about the thing that went to zero back when I was 43. Yeah. I got to my goal. You know, it's like, it's sort of like the ends and the means kind of a thing. Yeah, All right. absolutely. 
Absolutely. So now I'm going to go in a different direction. What about when a stock pops during earnings season? So we've spent 30 minutes plus now talking about how to sort of mentally get through when a stock you own drops massively after earnings. Yeah, they go up too. Yeah. So let's talk about how to mentally do the right thing when a stock you own jumps 10, 15, 20% after earnings. Because I do think that's a different, actually a different thing. So what are your thoughts on that? I think you're wrong. It's exactly the same thing. I disagree, but I want to hear what you say first. So I think if you understand why you own it, if you understand your goals, right, short-term, long-term, and again, you think about that business within the within the context of what are you looking to achieve, right? Is is this something you intend to own for 10, 20 years, right? You see this long tail of opportunity of growth for this business. NVIDIA, we could use that one as an example, right? Then then you can look at a company that has a big pop. The stock's gone up a lot, right? And it's up a lot and it's on earnings. And then it's also up a lot in the six months before, whatever it may be. And then you say, okay, well, you know, I've, I've, this is a business that I intend to own for another, hopefully 10 years if they keep delivering like this and avoid the mistake of, I think it was David Gardner, the first person that I heard say this is, is punishing your portfolio by selling a stock that did exactly what you bought it to do, you know, but, but I, I do think you also, you do have to, and the, I specifically chose NVIDIA because as, as you know, this is one that I actually after it had a huge run up, I guess we're talking six weeks or so ago at this point, a couple months at this point, maybe I chose to sell not all of it. I think I sold you know, a good a good chunk of it because it had become such a large portion of my portfolio based on my expectations of what it could generate over the next five to ten years. I decided it was time to to thin that position a little bit. And since then, it's gone up another 15 or 18%. So in the short term, it looks like I made a bad decision. And like the macro, like the micro, looking at that one stock, it was a bad decision. But again, thinking about trying to manage my entire wealth, manage my own actions and behaviors, I still think it was the right decision for me to make. I, I'm not fixated by this company anymore. I, I agree with everything you just said. And that's why you sort of made my point, because I do think the way you think about a stock that pops big after earnings is different than a stock that drops big after earnings. And it's because there are more what, what I think you and I would both consider to be legitimate reasons to trim a stock or maybe even sell it than based on like how well it's doing in, in relation to the rest of your portfolio. Like is it becoming an outsized position or, have the, or has the business just really gotten way too far ahead of itself? And I just think it's a different calculation than when it drops. And it's for exactly what you said. So I'll give you, I'll, let's use NVIDIA as an example. I wasn't in the position to think about trimming it because everything is such a small portion of my overall portfolio at this point. But if I were someone who had, let's say I, I had owned NVIDIA for seven or eight years and it was already two, three, four, five percent of my total portfolio, and then it has that crazy AI bump after the last quarter, maybe I've already been a little uncomfortable with how big it is. Maybe I'm already, well, maybe I should trim this back. And then all of a sudden I'm given like a 20 or 30% gift in a day or two. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's, a, then maybe you do go trim a little bit and do the exact same thing you did. And you could be wrong or you could be right. But to me, that's a different calculus than reacting after a drop. I don't know. That's just, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I just think it's a, it's worth thinking about a slightly different way. But I also think it goes back to the same sort of fundamentals toolbox framework thing we're talking about, which is everything I just said is prefaced by the fact that there was a reason, there was logic, there was understanding, there was information, and it wasn't because of the stock pop. It was because of all these reasons and the stock pop was maybe the thing that pushed the the decision over the edge. So I I don't know. I just think it's a little bit different. So I... I I agree, but with, here's the here's the caveat, and I think this is the reality: is we're humans and we're people, and we're really good at at ready, fire, aim, arriving at a decision that we want to make before we've actually done the research, and then and then we just we we figure out a way to justify what we've decided we wanted to do anyway. And I think that's one of the concerns about selling on the big earnings pop. So we decide to do it, and then we confirmation bias our way into doing what we just wanted to do, and we get. And it works out once or twice. And just like you're buying stocks around earnings back when you didn't know what the hell you were doing, you get lucky once or twice and you think you're skilled, right? And I think for most people, the reality is that sort of action is probably going to do more harm to your wealth building than it is going to be doing good to your wealth building. So back to the toolbox, again, another one of kind of my foundational parts of my framework is being glacial about selling in general, mm-hmm. because it the, the 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 you're more likely to hurt yourself than you are to help yourself most of the time. Because again, to quote David Gardner, to paraphrase David and and Tom Gardner too, is the winning stocks t- generally continue to win. It's the ones that look a little bit overvalued that always outperform. That those are the ones that do it for 10, 20, 30 years, right? Yeah. And and those are the ones that we always end up selling because they've gone up a lot. I agree. I'm not I'm not advocating for wanton selling after pops. My my whole point, well, one, I wanted to argue with you a little bit cuz I think that's fun. But I also it's fun. Because there because there is a thing there because there is such a thing as trimming positions that get too big. Because yeah. that's a legit thing. That's yeah. why I, I wanted to just differentiate that. Like, I could see a better reason for making a move after a pop than a drop. However, I yeah. agree with you. This is it's, not. It's when people sell the lo- sell the winners and they right. go throw that money at their losers. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's the other thing too. The other time I think it's worth considering is you and I. I think probably more maybe than we should view investing through the lens of two guys in our forties who still have a lot of years ahead of us to make money and invest. And we could have listeners. I'm sure we do have listeners who are maybe very near retirement or in retirement and are still invested. And when you're in that situation, people who run funds have the same challenge, which is I want to buy this other thing, but I don't have the capital. Right. I have to sell something to buy something. And sometimes you're in that position. So I, I just think there's, there are, there are reasons and opportunities to take advantage of a pop that I just view a little bit differently than the drop, but we don't have to belabor it anymore. Well, that's one of the things, just to tease, we, we are, we, we're kicking around the idea of having a sh- doing a show that's maybe a little more focused around some retirement ideas too. So stay tuned for that. Down the yeah, road. for sure. All right, we got one more, we got one more thing we want to talk about, right? 
Jeff, I have one question. I think this is one that we're going to, I think we're going to argue, we're going to disagree on the margins. I think in general, we're going to have the same agreement, but I think it's going to be a fun, it's going to be a fun argument. So how important do you think earnings season is? I think it is, it's both important and not important. <laughs> God damn it. No, all right. I think it's important. I don't think it's important in the short term in terms of actions that investors should take, but I think it's very important for building and verifying your thesis and reason for owning a company or verifying some concerns you've had and reasons to sell. So let's use Twilio as an example, because I believe it reports today or tomorrow. I think tomorrow. It's a company that you and I have talked about on the podcast a bunch of times, because it's very easy to summarize how the last couple of years for the company have, has gone. Growth up, profitability down. Like that's, that's a lot of these companies, but especially Twilio. Like a lot of the growth metrics have been looking good, just not taking any steps towards profitability. And I said over and over again, every time we talk about it, I, I keep holding on every quarter and I look forward to the earnings release because I want to see, is this the quarter that the net loss improves or the cash burn improves? Now, one quarter doesn't make a trend. So it could tick up this quarter and then it could head right back down the next quarter. But because I've already identified that as a thing I'm looking for with that company, I think earnings season is really important because every three months I get a little glimpse into both the numbers, but what also what management says about it to see if they're in heading in the right direction or if they think they can get in the right direction. I mean, if they came out today or tomorrow, whenever they report and they show a, 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 a lessening net loss and they show less cash burn, and then they say something like, we expect gap profitability to be by this date. And it's a new, it's a, it's a closer date than they've said in the past, or maybe they haven't said it in the past. I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, that's enormously important. That might be the difference between me saying, all right, I have enough conviction not to sell to, to call back to another newsletter post that I wrote about a couple weeks, couple months ago to see if that actually happens moving forward. So from that standpoint, I think it's, it's really important. Yeah, it, it's. I think the key thing with earning is it's it's directionality, right? Because the reality is that for for companies, like it's it's what they do in between. It's that three months of actual work that they do. That's what really matters. And earnings is we just get a chance to learn a little bit more about it. That's when they generally like actually tell us the the what's what's happened. But even that, it's important. I mean, this is like this is like little Susie's report card for like the second semester of third grade. She might've had a really tough time in math, but she might still be an engineer when she grows up. It's just, it's so, I don't want to say meaningless, but it's just such a, such a tiny piece of data for the most part. I mean, there, there, there are other companies where it does matter a lot more. Like what's the, Jeff, what's your, your little biotech outset medical, right? Yeah. The, the right now where they are in their business, like their third quarter earnings could be really, really important, like, because we're going to learn so much more about how the entire healthcare system is, is taking up 
their dialysis thing. Here's well, here's where I will agree with you with what you're saying. I and I will amend what I said. I think it's important for every company to some degree. I think it's way more important for certain companies, and I think it's way less important for others. Yeah. Uh, I'll use an example for my portfolio, Microsoft. I own Microsoft, and I, I really don't pay that close attention to the earnings because it's just a huge, sprawling business. There's so many different things they got going on. I look for the right. top line, headline numbers, because I think Microsoft's going to be fine. Like, there's nothing that's going to happen in one quarter that would make me sell Microsoft unless they were like, we no longer want to have cloud computing, you know, yeah. like something that's, yeah. if, if we're, just, we're shutting Azure down and we're right. writing it down to $0, we're yeah, not even going to sell it. We're going back to my windows and that's it, you know, like, okay. right. You know, something like that, but obviously that's ridiculous. It's just a silly thing to say. I mean, you could put Apple in that bucket to some degree. Well, I think so, even like a company like Starbucks is, is an example. You know, you look at the quarter and you're like, wow, they grew, you know, they doubled their China business, all this kind of stuff. It's like, well, not really. You know, China just opened back up for business and the business yeah. is healthy and we found out that it's healthy and like all you got to do is read the news a little bit and you're going to know their labor relations is getting better in the US and like it, it's nothing fundamentally changed. You know, it's right. just a little bit of information about a few months of, of business. So, Here's how I think about it, Jeff. Like, this is really how I think about it is with the outset medicals that like have something really major they're doing or companies that directionally, they've been burning cash because they went public to raise cash to, to get to profitability, to grow, right? They've got a bunch of money to spend to grow the business. Are they like directionally, are they heading the right way? That's what I, I think is important for earnings. And like for the big stable businesses, the Microsofts, the Starbucks of the world, it's where the number's probably fine. And for some reason, did the company just miss it? Or maybe they said something on the, the earnings call about their guidance that the market hated and has created an opportunity to buy, you know, where valuation kind of matters more for these bigger stable companies. That's when I think earnings matters. And it's not even as much, I think, that the earnings matters is it matters how the street reacted to it. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it, I said it earlier, like not, no company goes up into the right in a straight line. And when it comes to the larger, more established companies, you really don't have to worry about when they do miss earnings or, you know, miss the EPS by a couple cents and all of a sudden the stock sells off 5%. That can be something worth paying attention to because you know, they're going to be fine. <laughs> you yeah. know, like they're, right. there's a very low chance that this is the beginning of a trend where their earnings per share declines continuously for the next several quarters. Like that's probably not going to happen. So for those who are dollar cost averagers, sometimes those can be little kind of low stakes opportunities. I think when stuff like that happens. Yeah, exactly. You take a break, Jeff. Let's do it. Let's take a short break and we'll come right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back. We announced in our episode, our one-year anniversary episode last week, we were going to be trying something new and it could come as bonus content instead of just the once a week podcast drop. 
So stay tuned for that to start happening semi-regularly are the smattering rough cuts. But Jeff and I have decided we're going to do our first the smattering rough cuts as the B segment for this week's show. So to start it off, I'm going to read. Wait, before you do, let's just say we, we did not prepare for this at all. No, no. We're just no, going to, no, we're going to hit record and just talk and we'll see if it's any good. Yeah, no, this is gold. This is gold, Jeff. So, so Jeff, this started off, you, you, tw- you, you texted me this cause you're the guy you, you read, you read the earnings when they come out and I don't. Right. And this is, this is one of my favorite, favorite CEOs, favorite founders here that read this, but I just think it's so, it's so wonderful. I want to read just this one little line right here. It's two sentences. Then I'm, then I'll tell you who it is. Why do you anoint it? So this is speaking to wall street analysts. Oh, I know what you're talking about now. Okay. Why do you anointed analysts on this call? applaud low deposit betas. Are we not as an industry celebrating screwing the customer? I know exactly who that is. I remember sending that to you now. This is Chip Mahan. He's the CEO and chairman of Live Oak Bank. So Live Oak Bank, their business model is very different than most most banks. So they focus their lending on small businesses. So they're like their tagline is, you know, our goal is to be a America's bank for small businesses, but their deposit base is mostly internet savers, right? So people that are looking for high yield savings or a CD or something like that. And I think they're, what is their yield right now? It's like 4%. They pay on savings, 3%, 4%. And, and they can do that because they don't have 3% mortgages on their books. They do all these adjustable rate small business loans, right? That go up. So so Jeff, my question for you, you sent this to me. You, you, you remember texting it to me. I do. I do. What did you think when you first read it? So I have a, an absolute love in my heart for CEOs who don't care about Wall Street. And also, I love when anyone throws shade at analysts. It just cracked me up. I think it's fantastic. It's the reason I love Berkshire Hathaway. It's the reason I love Boston Omaha. You know, you don't get an earnings call. You just get sometimes not even a press release. It's just like, here's an SEC filing. You you go do the work. I I love that. It it it's so few people that do it that it just makes me super happy. Another one that comes to mind, I believe it was Winmark, their CEO a quarter or two Winmark ago. Winmark owns Play It Against Sports. And right. A few it's like those a, other. Yeah. yeah. I believe the entire press release was one line, and it was something like we're very pleased with how the year has started or something like that. Like that was the whole, right. Right. But you know, it's, so I, I, so my first thought was like, I just love when these kind of things happen. That's why I had to send it to you, but it actually got me thinking like it, it's, it's so routine and normalized for these CEOs to just answer these questions. And some of them are insightful and good. And some of them are just ridiculous. They remind me of athlete interviews, right? Like when they go up to the athlete that just yeah. lost they, you know, they, they a, think a playoff they, they game. Think they thank their mama. They thank Jesus. They thank their No, not even that. It, it's not even the re- responses that bother me. It's the fact that they ask the questions. Like they'll go up to like, yeah. the, the, yeah. like you, team just loses a playoff game and they go up and say, you just lost, your season's over. How do you feel? Right. Right. So, well, how do you how do you think they feel? They probably feel think? pretty terrible. 
you know, yeah. so here he was, you know, just to go back. To this was, this me. was maybe, this was the equivalent of I, I, Allen Iverson's, we're talking about practice. Well, I mean, right? he's basically saying like, you guys ask questions about low, you know, low yields for customers. Like it's like a normal, good business thing. And it shouldn't be like, we're talking yeah. about screwing the customers. And I just right. happy. He said that. I think that's great. You're talking about practice. So I, I take, so. I'm a huge fan of Chip Mahan, right? We're going to have to, one of these days, Jeff, we're going to have to have Lou Whiteman back on to talk about like everything that happened with the banking industry in the 80s through the 90s, basically all like around Charlotte, North Carolina, when all of this stuff was, was, was happening with Bank of America and Wells Fargo and kind of the bank, the, the changing from this regional banking industry to now that we have like these monolithic, you know, half dozen institutions. And Chip Mayhem was kind of in the middle of all of that. But the thing about, like, so here's the thing. I take a much more cynical view of this. So before he made that comment that are we not as an industry celebrating screwing the customer, he describes Bank of America's deposits business and the fact that they pay an average in the second quarter 22 basis points, 0.22%. Right is what the bank with the second largest deposit base, I think there's the second largest behind JP Morgan Chase, maybe the largest, but I think it's the second largest. Anyway, anyway it's one of the two largest by deposits and they pay a pittance. They're actually, their, their cost to gather those deposits is six times as much right, than they actually even pay. They pay like the, the branches and the branch employees yeah, and all that kind yeah, of stuff, yeah, yeah. right? So, it, and again, based on their entire business model, this was the, most self-serving thing, the CEO of a bank that's based on the internet that pays high yield savings as a feature to draw deposits so then they can fund high yield loans to small businesses. He's the one guy that can say that. Yeah. And he's also Chip Mahan, who's been around forever. And like when these analysts' daddies were analysts, he knew them, right? Yeah, so yeah. he can get away with it. That's the way I think about it. I mean, yeah, look, I'm, I, none of these guys are a hundred percent altruistic. You know what I mean? Like they're, no. he, he also, he says that probably also, you know, he, he knows that that is a smart thing to say as CEO of this company. It is his company's competitive advantage. I get all that. I'm not naive to it, but still you know, feels having, good. Yeah. I mean, having listened and read so many earnings transcripts and learnings calls, it's, it's just refreshing when they're milk toast, man, yeah, they're all milk. They're toast. so they're hard to get through, you know, yeah. and it, so, so much of it is like, you know, just to rant on earnings call transcripts a little bit, earnings calls, you know, there, there's two things about them that drive me crazy. One is when it's just a long litany of like things that the company offers, like almost like a list of their products that gives you no insight about the actual business. It'd be like if you listen to the McDonald's earning call and they were like, we sell hamburgers and right. we sell French fries and our French fries go in a fryer. And we, then we put them in a little container and we hand them to people. Like it has nothing to do with how the business is doing, but that's kind of the detail some of these software companies go to. And then the other one that drives me nuts is then the CFO just reads the results that you can just go look at the. They, they literally read the press release. Well, not even that. Like I don't need the person to say to me, you know, gross profit went up 60 basis points and revenue was up 24% and earnings per share was down 3%. That's, I can go read that. It's actually more interesting to go read that in the 
in the 10K or the 10Q because it will say the same thing and then it'll say because of, right? right. This was impacted by and offset by, and then you, you actually, actually get, get some you information. Get, you actually get some commentary on right. it. Yep, yep. So yeah, That's I didn't true. expect us to be ranting about earnings calls, but they, they drive me nuts. I mean, once you read enough of them or listen to enough of them, you, you sort of learn how to just skim and stop when it's something substantial. Right. But yeah, it's just, and can I, you know, let me, let me go. I'm on a little bit of a rant here. Let me go one, one step further. It's 2023. Zoom exists. Riverside exists. What's what we're recording on. You can buy a nice USB microphone for like a hundred bucks. Why are we still listening to these earnings calls on like literal phone line conference right. calls? That'll start to dial. Yeah. The, the sound quality is terrible. I think this is a business opportunity. I hope an entrepreneur is listening. Someone should, if maybe this business exists, I don't know, maybe quarter, the quarter app can do this. Like sell two companies, like earnings calls as a service. Like we will come to your corporate headquarters. We will set up nice microphones or maybe you could just, I don't know, maybe Zoom can do this. Bro, it's 2023. Everybody has this now, COVID. Everybody has the equipment on their computer. It drives me nuts. Like everybody does. I'm with you. Throw it up on YouTube too. Like, I, you know, the fact that you have to like log in, you ever try to like actually watch one live, you have to log in, give your email address. It's oh, like, it's garbage. It's so stupid. So stupid. It's so ridiculously stupid. I, I, yeah, I agree. That's one of my biggest frustrations is like for the day job when I'm going to like find a transcript or, or just actually just even find that like the earnings presentation. Cause a lot of times they like give you nice consumable bites of like the KPIs, so you can like find the stuff that you really want yeah. to know to see if it's changed. Yeah. And you have to put in your email address and register for it. It's like, bro, yeah. No, that's, well, the other, so all right, here's another pet peeve, because we actually just talked about this before we hit record. Not many companies do this, but some of them do. And the one that I follow that does this, that drives me nuts is Airbnb. They put out a press release for earnings that says, we released earnings. And then you have to go back to the investor relations website to actually find the press release or the shareholder letter. Someone said this on Twitter several months ago, like something along the lines of like, companies that do this should be like, I don't know, the CEOs should go to jail or something. CEOs to Gitmo. Let's send them to Gitmo. Yeah, it was like- No, it's true. Mercado Libre did that. I just was on this podcast. I was talking about, I haven't read, it's my biggest stock and I still haven't read their earnings report and it's been out for five days. But like you look on their- of course, this is great for, this is really good for, you know, audio format to describe something that's on a computer screen. But you're looking at their press release and it says notices and then it has them by date here. And it says August 2nd, Mercado Libre Inc. reports second quarter 2023 financial results. Great. And then I click, and then I click on that link and it opens a PDF that says Montevideo, Uruguay company reported earnings and a bunch more words that are just words that say we reported earnings, but not the f-ing earnings. Oh, now I got to bleep that out. Okay. But you got to bleep it. You can't just delete it. <laughs> just delete I don't it. even know how to do that. I think I'm just going to leave it. Just leave it. Just leave <laughs> it. I think that's a perfect way to end our first ever smattering rough cuts with you dropping an F-bomb and me saying I'm not going to edit it. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now you're going to hear about it. So give us some feedback. If you th- if you liked the last 12 minutes, let us know, and maybe we'll do more of these. Yeah, and if you don't like them, maybe we'll do more of these. Yes. 
All right, Jeff, we did it. We did it. All right, friends, as always, we love to give our answers to these hard investing questions. We love to rant, rave, and bitch as well. But it's up to you to do your own ranting and raving and to find your own answers to these hard questions. I absolutely believe in each and every one of you. You can do it. All right, Jeff, we'll see you next time. See you next time.